This is episode 105 of Relate on telehealth, the intersection of healthcare and tech. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real-life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet. So let's sit down and relate. Hello everyone, I am your host Patrick McAndrew and welcome to yet another episode of Relate. In this episode we are talking about something called telehealth, which is essentially the combination of technology and its implementation in the healthcare industry. Our guest talks with us today about helping other organizations get more excited about learning new things. We talk a lot about how the healthcare industry sometimes tends to stay stagnated, that they don't want to change. But especially with everything going on with COVID-19, it's important that the healthcare industry starts to adopt new technology practices. We discuss how healthcare tech moves slow and it's human nature to resist change. We also discuss the role of the government in the healthcare industry about how we need to teach healthcare professionals tech literacy. And our guest also talks to us about what neurodiversity is and why it's so important. Our guest is the owner of EthTech, a healthcare consulting and training firm for the digital era, and Lucy in the Sky Therapy, an online private practice for neurodiverse adults. With almost 20 years of experience in healthcare, she holds four degrees in four different disciplines from the University of Washington. Her work produced notable achievements in practice, policy, research, and administration across the public health, social work, psychology, criminal justice, and child welfare sectors. Our guest has led large projects across the country in behavioral and medical research, while also fine-tuning her craft as a trauma and addiction therapist. She is a longtime mentor and applauded speaker, creating new opportunities to advance course offerings and continuing education on telehealth ethics and digital marketing for providers and healthcare partners. So with all of that said, I am very excited to share this episode with you all. It's a very unique take on what we talk about on this podcast. We're really going to dissect what telehealth means. So without further ado, let me please introduce our guest, Tiffany Chuol. Hello, Tiffany. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to chat with you about the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So you're the founder of an organization called EthTech. And I think especially nowadays with COVID-19 going on and really just 
really the, the state of the world kind of in this flux period, I think there's never been a more timely era to talk about what you're doing with EthTech. So I'm wondering if you could just share with our listeners, what is EthTech? What inspired you to create this organization? And then also what led you on the path to creating the organization? Sure. Uh, this is, you know, it's always a difficult question for me to answer because I consider myself to be a multi-potentialite. Um, so I love to sit within the intersection of things that people may not feel are necessarily related. And about 12 years ago, I was working as a researcher. I've spent a lot of my career in medical and behavioral health research. And I was overseeing a, a staff of 25 people that were going out across Washington state to interview parents who had recently lost custody of their children to our CPS system here in Washington state. Oh, wow! It was a very ambitious project and it was the first of its kind in Washington state. And we were trying to reach people who were often very difficult to reach for reasons like, um, you know, having, a lot of economic hardship and, and not having access to a computer or people who were purposely trying to avoid anyone that they consider to be an authoritative figure, like folks that were intersecting with our criminal justice system. So I convinced my boss to, uh, to pay for 25 smartphones. This was back in 2008 when MySpace was still a thing. Oh, classic. And I... <laughs> Yeah. And it was really unheard of. I mean, smartphones at that time were still considered such an excessive accessory. And luckily, our, our executive director uh, trusted me enough. I was working at the University of Washington in the School of Social Work. And I armed my staff with these smartphones and I developed this method of, of branding our study and using social media and using smartphone apps to help get the word out about our study, to keep following up with people as well, and to really manage my staff. And luckily it worked. Um, and so that brought more attention my way to help develop and train other project managers in research to use this method. And then I realized, well, I better get better at understanding social media marketing because that's such a part of what I'm trying to do. And back in 2008, there wasn't a there wasn't a program, there wasn't a certificate. You just had to be a self-taught learner. So I just started fine-tuning that craft. And then from then, for the last 12 years, I've just continued to combine technology and healthcare in a lot of unexpected ways um, across research ethics, across uh, traditional behavioral health research, and then also clinically as a therapist who provides online therapy currently. So I developed EthTech a couple years ago as a way to help other organizations, private practitioners, government agencies, universities get more comfortable not knowing everything because this is such an exciting field, this intersection of healthcare and tech. Some people will call it telehealth. Some people will refer to it as health IT, whatever you want to call it, because we don't really have these standardized terms yet. It's a necessary place for us to be. And COVID has made that undeniably 
the case. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating just to see. I mean, even for myself, not being in the healthcare industry personally, just to see really now and then over the course of, like you said, the past 12 years, how the healthcare industry has changed. And just given from your experience, how have you seen the healthcare industry changing and what can people do to keep up with these changes, especially with everything going on nowadays? That's a great question. Um, I think that our healthcare industry has unfortunately in a lot of ways resisted change. And that I think has to do with the fact that we, the, the way that we hire in healthcare hasn't really changed. So even now, if you look at positions in telehealth, whether you're looking at, say, a technology company who's trying to bring in someone from the healthcare side to help them, or if you're looking at a hospital, a lot of times our folks in HR don't really know what the skills are and how to find those people. And so an example of this is if you look at who's doing the social media marketing for major hospitals uh, or telehealth companies as well, like companies that offer uh, HIPAA compliant video technology for providers, they're the folks that are, will manage all their social media tend to be people who really would never be able to get that job at an entry level uh, position in any other sector when it comes to social media marketing, because our healthcare sector just doesn't really encourage this intersectionality, this multi-potentialite person that really they need, because technology does change so often, and healthcare does too, but I would say technology is more rapidly advancing, and the ways in which we have taught healthcare professionals to stay in the know tend to be looking at academic journals where, and I've, I've been published in several myself, where it will take from the time you start working on a project or a study until it's published anywhere from two to five years. So by the time those traditional sources of information that we look to in healthcare are published, they're incredibly outdated and irrelevant when we're thinking about healthcare tech. In terms of how do we shift that and, and how do we reevaluate learning within the healthcare sector? I think number one is looking at our higher education system. If you look at most programs for physicians, nurses, social workers, psychologists, public health, they're not offering education on technology. Usually there's not even an elective course or even a one hour seminar. And I know this because I consider myself to also be a lifelong learner. I have four degrees from the University of Washington, all in different disciplines. And I couldn't find a class that focused on this. And I, my last degree I finished in 2016. So I have tried to approach colleges, community colleges, universities. I've begged them for the last four years, really the last six, to let me help them. Let's develop curriculum. Let's get classes on telehealth. Let's get certificates. Why are we not talking about this? Why are we not preparing the future of healthcare 
to be folks who also have that skill set on the tech side. Um, and then you're seeing that now, you know, our, our universities are struggling to even make education accessible online to our students. So we have some challenges that we're facing right now. Why do you think that the healthcare industry has been very resistant to change, whether whether consciously or not, to go off what you said about really the education being in, in a lot of journals that, you know, will take two to five years to to publish. And then by the time it gets to the readers, a lot of that information is outdated. Why do you think that the healthcare industry is so resistant to that kind of change? Well, I'm a therapist, among other things. And so I think human nature just tends to resist change. A lot of that, I think, in healthcare, if you look at who's in leadership, who's in charge of our hospitals, who, who are in charge of our government agencies in healthcare? Um, what, what, what about governors? You know, a lot of times within states, governors are the ones that make decisions about what parts of a budget for healthcare um, are going to be applied to which areas. In, in general, these are folks who themselves don't use a lot of technology, are avoidant, or maybe have very negative views of technology. And I, I don't just say this anecdotally, I also did my thesis for my master's in public health on social media, health data privacy, and looking at health research. So I interviewed people all over the country, including folks in very high positions within government agencies and hospitals about how we're using social media with research to understand healthcare. A lot of those folks didn't were in denial. They didn't really think that this was even happening at all. And I did this study back in 2015, 2016. And then when I would ask them, you know, about the ethics around this, should we allow this to happen? Should we not? They were very naive. Um, they didn't really understand the complexity. They were resistant to change. And I think within those interviews, I did these qualitative, very in-depth interviews. What I found was a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment that they don't know. Because when you look at who's in charge of state budgets, who's in charge of our universities, who owns our medical clinics, who's running our universities, they tend to be folks who have not themselves kept up with technology and are afraid to admit that they really don't know what's going on and to ask for help. And if someone had, I wish someone had told me 12 years ago when I started doing this work that I would have to really rely on my skills as a therapist when I'm trying to teach healthcare professionals about technology because I would never have anticipated the necessary um, skills I have to tap in my own understanding of emotional intelligence and avoidance um, when it comes to this topic. But there is something so triggering for folks who mean well, but this is just a very touchy topic. I've had a lot of organizations hire me as a consultant to come in and help them with their social media campaigns for healthcare, 
um, with their policies around social media, adopting new tools to reach patients. And even though these people are seeking me out and asking for my help and paying me, the defensiveness that will bubble up is very similar to when I'm working with clients in therapy. And we're in the thick of very difficult work to address longstanding habits they've wanted to change for a long time. It's so fascinating just with what you're saying, this resistance and really this need to keep things the same. Do you think that a lot of their concerns have to do with uh, data privacy and, you know, those rights with regards to information getting out there? Do you think those are their concerns or do you think it's really something else? You know, when I was doing my research and, and doing these in-depth interviews, what I saw was really two, two different ends of a spectrum. One were the folks who were very resistant because they just saw all technology as bad and evil, and they were just very concerned about data privacy. But when I would try to get them to explain the specifics around that, give me an example. They had a very hard time visualizing that because often they're not using technology. And then the other end of the spectrum, which has been really intriguing to me recently with COVID, are folks that have this other very laissez-faire attitude of, hey, if you're using tech, you've already given up your rights. And I saw this actually yesterday when a whole bunch of my colleagues in California, luckily I, I interact with healthcare providers all over the country and, and in other countries, and they're so giving of their time to help keep me informed. So yesterday morning, I get all these messages in all these different modes from California to share with me that the governor of California has decided to lift the, the requirement for healthcare providers to get consent before delivering telehealth services. And I was just shocked because when you look at what has happened with, with HHS, our Health and Human Services and our Office of Civil Rights, due to COVID, they've lifted these penalties that usually healthcare professionals face and said, it's okay to do therapy in a Facebook message. It's okay, you can see your patient for your their you know routine checkup um, via FaceTime. And that's already terrifying enough because the minute a healthcare provider does anything with a patient in FaceTime, a Facebook message, uh, Skype for business, they have now given that data to that technology company who owns that data, will sell that data and do whatever they want. Now, you've got California saying, and in addition to that healthcare providers, you don't even need to, you don't even need to inform your patients of these risks. Wow. (laughs) That's a, it's a a lot to wrap our heads around, you know, it's Mm -hmm. because it is, it's really this critically private healthcare data that is then be as you just said that's then being used by these technology companies it's it's pretty wild it, obviously covid has had this huge impact on the healthcare industry do you think in some ways when it comes to telehealth that covid has kind of been this wake up call as to you know how to address healthcare and technology and 
you know, like how, how do we move forward in the recent events of COVID with regards to infusing technology into the healthcare system so that it could be both beneficial and at the same time protect the privacy of those using it? Mm -hmm. I think first and foremost, our leaders need to um, need to create new positions. So one of the things I propose to different states is let me help you create a statewide model for developing and delivering and then evaluating healthcare provider education on how to use technology for telehealth, um, setting that up, the policies, the training, and also the compliance around it. And unfortunately, what states are saying to me is we don't have the budget for that. But what I'm seeing is the amount of money, uh, taxpayers' money, that's being wasted right now with all these providers going to their state agencies, begging for guidance, not getting it. And, you know, you've got folks that are being paid a lot of money and they're scrambling and they're inefficient. And I, I think what needs to happen first and foremost is to realize we're never going back. The clock will never be dialed back to before COVID. Telehealth is here. It's not going away, nor should it. If you look at our military, our military has been providing telehealth for decades and I've worked for them before. And what I appreciate is one of the things they've had to do is really think about accessibility with healthcare and disability as just a core part of their values. And we need that in healthcare. I'm somebody who has physical disabilities. I've spent time in a wheelchair, two years in a wheelchair. And I know what it's like to not be able to get the health care you need because you literally don't have transportation due to your own mobility impairments. Why has it taken COVID for our healthcare system to push up to the forefront that value on accessibility? And why now am I hearing from our leaders across the country, okay, we don't know what to do with COVID. We've got to reach our patients. So throw out all the data privacy, throw out the requirements for consent, use whatever tool you want. It's a very reactionary response to a long-term issue. And I think what people need to remember is the key to this really is sustainability. There is an affordable and pragmatic way of offering responsible telehealth now with COVID. Luckily, there are some really great healthcare providers out there that are smart enough to know they can't trust what they're hearing from our different government entities and throw data privacy out the window. That's not what healthcare professionals do. It's not what we should be about. And why we would never want people to put our PHI online. Why would we do that to our patients? Unfortunately, those well-meaning folks are having to pay me, you know, money that they don't really have budgeted for this ad hoc education and training that, in my opinion, needs to be provided instead by our higher education institutions and our government agencies. Wow. <laughs> it, it's really amazing just like taking a step back and and really realizing how much work needs to be done. It, to go off what you said, just with regards to the government being very reactionary to this situation, 
I, I really love how you mentioned about figuring out a solution that is going to be sustainable over the long run. So with that said, how do you think that healthcare and tech industries can combine for the common good in the long run to go off of what you said? Obviously, this is going to take a lot of work, but in the ideal scenario, what would telehealth look like in the future? Mm-hmm. I think that we have to start requiring a certain level of tech literacy for all our healthcare professionals. And I know that may not be a popular opinion, but I don't think it's a, I don't, I don't think that this is a, I don't think this is a unreasonable suggestion. Everyone, whether we're talking about a nursing assistant who's going to do a two-year degree in a community college all the way up to our hospital executives, the folks that run our healthcare insurance industry, um, the folks who oversee healthcare compliance. If, if you look at who is in charge and our health and human services, our FDA, our office of civil rights, how many, how much skill do these folks have? Have they spent time in these Facebook groups for healthcare providers? Because most of them don't understand how much healthcare providers go to Facebook groups to figure out what to do with their current clients and patients, how to learn new technology, really play things out. And I think when we're looking at accessibility, coming up with more creative ways to teach the future of our healthcare professionals. One of the things that I've done, which I really wish universities would allow me to help them um, replicate is I created a Facebook group for mental health professionals. Anyone around the world can join. They are screened. They have to answer certain questions. I moderate this group very closely, but it's called ethical dilemmas for mental health professionals. And I teach mental health professionals how to write case scenarios, examples of, of situations with patients in a way that's hypothetical, so it's not discussing specific clients, it's not exposing any identifying information, but we then approach this as a group, we tackle it together and we analyze the case and try to weigh the risks and the benefits. But one of the things in there that's so important that I think is missing in healthcare education is the core of that group is anti-shame. If I don't tolerate people one-upping one another, this whole power struggle, I will sometimes see where, well, how, how come you don't already know that you must be stupid? There's a lot of that backbiting that happens around ethics education with healthcare tech. And I just don't allow that because that limits our learning. That, that is, that is inhibiting of what creative and, uh, multi-potential learning in healthcare needs to be about. And what I've seen in that group is incredible. The way in which professionals in that group are holding space and keeping people safe to admit, I don't know what to do. I'm really struggling with my patients. And to feel empowered and okay to admit that is so it's just very humbling to watch. I've been very proud of that project. And I really want universities and colleges to help me create this 
within all of their systems. I really love that a lot because I think when people feel stifled or they feel like their voices are being shut down, uh, then you're absolutely right. It, it really dis encourages a more learning or more vibrant learning environment. And so I, I really love how you're approaching this about really creating this atmosphere where people will be able to share their knowledge, of course, but then also be able to openly learn from one another as well. Yeah, it's it's an encouraging environment for neurodiversity. And I think that that is another just key piece to all education, but especially healthcare education is opening up the door for creative and uh, multifaceted perspectives. I will say right now when I'm attending meetings um, in terms of committees for professional organizations, boards, um, work groups within state structures, it's overwhelmingly physicians, maybe a few nurse practitioners, and there's a very long history of the medical side not being very welcoming of behavioral health providers, especially social workers. We tend to traditionally be the lowest on the ladder in terms of getting any respect. And I find that to be incredibly frustrating because when physicians allow social workers a place at the table, the ways in which our patients and our clients and their families benefit is just incredibly important and necessary to the work that we do. It's not about who's smarter or who has more degrees. It's about all hands on deck right now. We have work to do and we need to foster a problem solving culture that welcomes creativity. I couldn't agree more with you on that. There was a, at the beginning of, of when you were speaking, you talked about neurodiversity. And I guess for, for our listeners out there, we could assume what that might mean. But for those who are listening who don't work in the healthcare industry, I'm wondering if you could just describe what neurodiversity is. Absolutely. So I see neurodiversity as an overarching term that refers to folks who may have learning disabilities, may come from different cultures that are not necessarily represented in our decision-making dynamics uh, in terms of power and healthcare. Also folks who are going to be considered gifted. So for myself, I was a neural, I'm neurodiverse. I'm a, I'm a student who doesn't learn in the ways that quote unquote, the normal student does. Who's normal? I don't know. I've never seen that person. If you find them, let me know. But I, I'm an, I'm an what you would call an overly excitable uh, learner. This term OEs or overexcitability comes from uh, a, a, a researcher in the 70s, Dabrowski, who developed this new concept of intelligence and challenge our assumptions around what what is intelligence and that it's not just book smarts. You can be gifted and be an athlete. You can be gifted and be a, a musician. For myself, I was labeled very young as gifted and the ways in which that really hurt me um, as a student continued throughout graduate school. I also have ADHD and in my own online therapy practice, I work with neurodiverse adults. 
a lot of which are going to have um, ADHD. They may also be gifted. They may be on the autism spectrum. They may have traumatic brain injuries. So there's this variety of ways in which they may have cognitive impairment due to, let's say, um, a brain tumor. But they may also um, be incredibly brilliant because they have ADHD. And folks with ADHD are some of the smartest, most creative folks I've met. And so it's about adapting to the ways in which they learn. And for some of us, that's going to be more audio. Others need more visual. Some folks need more movement. So there are these great, easy tests you can do to figure out what kind of learner are our people in the room. And I think in our healthcare education system, we only teach a one kind of learner, which is what I would call a linear learner. It's someone where you write on a whiteboard, you assign them some reading, they write a paper, they take a multiple choice test that's, that's timed, and they learn in this very one directional way. You give them the information, they take it in. Not everybody learns that way. A lot of people don't. And so we don't right now require, for the most part, that our professors teaching in higher ed have any training and education on instruction, which feel which sounds really bizarre, I'm sure, but this has a lot to do with politics. So major universities do not require that their faculty have training in how to teach. So they just teach the way that's always worked for them. And when we continue that, what we, what we, Breed. Um, I'm going to steal a little bit from a guy named Colin Seal, who owns this great uh, company called Think Law. He talks a lot about critical thinking. This this way that we're teaching right now, it only breeds this one directional, compliance focused learning. And what he talks about, and I totally agree with, is the importance of teaching critical thinking. How do you take a lot of information? and digest it, and, and the, but then also focus on your values. What are your values as a human being and as a healthcare professional? And then come up with your own decisions. That is a skill that we are missing quite a bit, especially in this conversation around telehealth. Oh my gosh, it's, it's so true. I mean, a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is really about the importance of creating meaningful connections and relationships, especially in today's digital age. And a lot of what you're talking about regarding neurodiversity and just critical thinking and thinking about the ways in which we are teaching, the ways in which we are relating to each other and, and also to ourselves as well. I think this is a conversation that is so critically important nowadays, just because I, I, I feel like to kind of go back on what we were discussing at the beginning of our conversation is that a lot of industries have this tendency to stay stagnant and to resist change. But it's only when we give ourselves the opportunity to embrace change that we're then better able to develop an understanding of ourselves, of our fellow humans, and as uh, and as a world as well. Uh, I'm wondering if you could discuss a little bit uh, regarding the healthcare industry and then specifically telehealth, why do you believe that it's crucial to develop solid and strong relationships, whether it be 
with healthcare providers and patients or just physicians and patients or just anyone working in the healthcare industry and who they're serving. Why is it so important to establish trust and meaningful relationships? Great question. Um, because if people don't trust one another, you can provide all kinds of solid information. They're not going to listen and they're not going to take it to heart. We've seen this proved over and over and over in research. When we look at the dynamics, if, if you're looking at a traditional uh, physical exam room, where you've got, let's say, a primary care doctor and a patient. When a doctor does these little changes, like sitting at eye level with their patient and not talking at them, but instead using open-ended questions, this uh, style we often refer to as motivational interviewing. And it's, a, it's not about shoving information down a patient's throat, it's about creating an open dialogue. When we do that, what we'll learn is what matters to the patient in front of us. So let's say I have a patient who's struggling with diabetes, and I really want them to change some of their dietary habits. Just telling that patient the reasons why eating, let's say, fried food or drinking a bunch of pop is, is not good for them that is very unlikely to result in any change. But if I just connect with that patient as one human being to another, and I, I come from a place of curiosity, I'm curious about them, which we should be because we're supposed to be providing what we call patient-centered care, meaning that the patient is always the top expert on what's best for them. So that means we have to trust the patient. And the reason why patient-centered care is now considered a, a ne necessary value, if you look at the American Medical Association, other associations, this is now a required approach to healthcare. It's because their research shows that that's what works. So the same way in which we're applying our understanding of how we create dialogue to help create change with our patients needs to be applied to how we're educating and training our healthcare providers. And unfortunately, what I see is, for example, providers calling into webinars that are offered by government agencies and hospitals, and they're being thrown a lot of information. It'll be like an hour to a 90 minute call and then there'll be maybe five minutes in the end to ask questions. And when those questions come, they're often difficult questions. They're not easy because we are wrestling with some really challenging questions right now amidst COVID. But the response from folks within these bureaucracies and leadership positions will be, I don't know and I'll get back to you or um, just dismiss the question altogether. And then they don't get back to people. What that reinforces is a very long-standing idea that healthcare providers already have, which is my, my leaders within my organization, within my hospital, uh, within my professional organizations or my, my state government or my federal government, they don't think I matter. 
I don't have a voice. No one is even asking the right questions because they don't matter. And I don't think that the people in power do have these malintentions, these, these ill intentions. I think they're just very myopic. They're in a tunnel. They're not out there in the field. So we really need to get our, our leaders within healthcare to come down to the emergency room. Come sit with a therapist in private practice. Go out to a homelessness encampment with a case manager. Get back on the ground because the folks in leadership positions are out of touch. They haven't done that work with patients directly, sometimes ever or for decades. And you, you need to put yourself in the environment of our healthcare providers to show that you do understand and that you care and you want to learn from them. Uh, this is this is such important information, Tiffany, and this is especially why I wanted to have you on the podcast because of just this incredible work that you're doing with EthTech and really educating people on why these topics are so crucially important, especially nowadays with the recent events of COVID. I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, where can they find out more information about health tech and what can healthcare organizations gain from health, uh, from F tech as well? Sure. So my website is www.ethtechusa.com. So think ethics and technology smashed together, ethtechusa.com. They can also email me and that email is info at ftechusa.com. I am on, if you Google Tiffany Chom, C-H-H-U-O-M as in mother, or if you Google Ftech, I am on Google Business. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all over the place. I, I also blog write for lots of folks. And my own website will be offering soon webinars and educational handouts. There's also some free stuff on there right now. Um, I think too, if you sign up for listservs, for example, I've been staying on top of what's going on at the federal level with HIPAA, because there's been a lot of changes in that area due to COVID. If you go on to hhs.gov, or if you go to the Office of Civil Rights website, anybody can sign up for those email notifications to find out what the new announcements are. The same is true of your state agencies. And if you're a healthcare provider and you haven't already, I encourage people to join their professional organizations as well, whether that's the American Psychological Association, whether that's the American Medical Association, you know, they are also sources of information. But unfortunately, none of these structures, I think, are going to give you all the information you need, which is why I also encourage people to follow media outlets like GeekWire, um, Jezebel, uh, Vice News. You know, I think some of these uh, some of these more independent media outlets are also doing a great job, like this new thing with Zoom. You know, I've really appreciated Vox and Vice and uh, a couple others to just get out these stories that are not necessarily in the mainstream media, which really do affect us. Um, the stuff that has come out with Zoom lately has been pretty um, unique to digest. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll make sure to include that information about EthTech and all these amazing resources for our listeners out there. You could check this out in the show notes. So, uh, Tiffany, thank you so much again for coming out on the show. And and really just to reiterate what I, what I was just mentioning as well, I really appreciate this work that you're doing. It's so critically important nowadays. Thank you. It's been so fun to be on the show and I look forward to hopefully talking with you again. I have one last question for you. What is your definition of a deep, meaningful relationship? Hmm. Oh, I love these questions as a therapist. (laughs) So a lot of that for me really draws on how I ground myself to start a therapy session. When you're thinking about right now what's going on with COVID and your typical therapist, they're dealing with so many distractions, all the emails, all the phone calls, Kids are at home, they're out of school. There's a lot of noise, a lot of noise going around. And so I have to put all that aside when I'm showing up for my own therapy clients. And the way that I do that is to really focus on being present in my body, doing some mindful breathing and using the mantra that I don't know really coming from a place of vulnerability because when I enter into a relationship with somebody who is putting a lot of trust in me and I come from a place of authority and knowing I am missing out and that person is not being seen or heard. So I think, you know, one way I describe it is ego checking just really checking that ego of mine and trying to set it aside. Wow. This is a great listener, both for a great lesson rather for both myself and our listeners. So Tiffany, thank you so much again for joining us on the show. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it so much and I look forward to staying in touch. And again, feel free to contact me at ftechusa.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.